Well, good morning. I hope by the time you leave, you'll have that same kind of feeling. It's a new day and opportunities ahead of you. Uh, so I, uh, I needed that song this morning. I have to tell you, our service last night, we have a five o'clock service, uh, was probably the worst we've ever had. And it was mostly on me. And, and it's just, you know, I needed a fresh start. Here, let me tell you about my last couple of days, okay? And uh, I just want you to know the buckets we're handing out right now have nothing to do with the story I'm about to tell you. These are how we give back to God. You'll understand in a moment. And uh, so I was at a conference in Alabama this week, in August, in Alabama. You, you just went outside and put your air tanks on and tried to breathe underwater like that. And uh, they said it was actually good weather. I, I was drowning in the humidity. But um, so I get on a flight, and you guys know, I've told you this, I have motion sickness, right? You know that. I'm, I'm, and you think I'm kidding. Like, earthquakes make me throw up, okay? It's that bad. And some of you don't get it. You invited me on your boats to go sailing. No, okay? It's not good. So I got on a flight, and I did my normal medication. I put a little patch on, and it was thunderstorms, and it was only a half-hour flight to Atlanta, and then we're going to Atlanta home, right? By the time I got to Atlanta, somehow I had gotten a bad patch or something, because by the time I got, I was violently sick. You can just imagine. Let me just tell you this part. When we landed, I, my wife stayed behind to gather our things. I had dropped my glasses in the process and stumbled off the plane blindly. I felt like Samson. I found the first post I could find. I, I slid down it and laid there in the floor. People are walking by, stepping over me. I'm in the middle of a line for the next flight. I am not lying. This is just Thursday this happened to me. And so I'm laying there. I'm a mess. I can't get on the next flight. I'm too sick. I can't even walk. So I got to lay there for an hour or two. And we just got a hotel there at the airport, stayed. And so the next day, um, I go get some, uh, my wife actually, I couldn't go get uh, Dramamine. And my family, they call it Dramamine because that's the effect it tends to have on me. So here I am at my age. I have traveled all over the world and I am afraid to get on another flight because if the same thing happens again, it's, it's not it's not good. So I made it home, and uh, I kind of slept it off a little bit on Friday night. So I get up yesterday morning. I come to the office early. I'm going to study, get ready. To, to, but I'm fogged because I've taken so much travel meds. You know, I'm just, I'm not actually seeing things, but I did hear a few things. And, uh, and so I'm just foggled. And I get up to speak last night, and I say, how you doing? And here's the response. Eh whole crowd. Well, I haven't seen the news. I have no idea what's going on in our nation. I haven't seen the news in a week, much less yesterday. I didn't know what was going on. And the crowd is just like nothing, and I'm nothing. It was a disaster. So if you saw, if you see anybody who was there last night, just apologize for me, will you? Just tell them it, we're trying not to let it happen again. Now, here's what's interesting about this service versus last service. I told this story last service, and I got several awes. I got squat out of you people. No, no, it's too late. No, no, no. You don't mean it. Don't do it. I tell you that because I wanted your sympathy. I didn't get that, so let's try something else. I tell you that because I really want to communicate this message today. I am, I, this is really good stuff, and it's positive stuff, and it's uplifting, and it's life-giving stuff, and I want you to hear it, but I'm going to need your help because I may not be on my game, right? Okay, I may not be fully on my game, so I need you to help me. Give me the benefit of the doubt. If it's getting a little boring, just kind of go like that, and I'll move on to the next thing, okay? But this is stuff that I really care about, and I think can really help all of us, all right? So I, I kind of tell you that story so you should, you'll be in it. Uh, so here's the deal, because it starts out as kind of a negative thing, but at the end of it, if you understand what Jesus was 
saying in this story, um, you'll understand that it's a life-giving, freeing kind of thing. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, a couple of days ago, I get a text, uh, or not a couple of days ago, last week. I get a text, and it's from Amy, who you just saw sitting up here. She's my daughter-in-law. And it says, Papa, come pick us up. We want to come over. Amy, why are you calling me Papa? That's what the grandkids call me, and you got your own car. And I found out that the grandkids have learned how to do Siri, send a text message. Papa, come pick us up. Because I was confused because the spelling was perfect. The grammar was perfect. I'm like, they can't do that. I know they can't do that. And so I was confused. Now, here's the deal. There are some things that adults should do and kids probably shouldn't do, right? I think texting may be one of them because I'm getting a lot of texts all of a sudden. And I don't need to get all those texts. But anyway, um, so I think there are some things like that adults should do, kids shouldn't do, right? Like, for example, I don't know, driving, uh, having coffee. You know, there are things that are, that are adult things and there are things that are kid things, right? So you're going to help me a lot if you just not. Okay. <laughs> I'm working here, people. All right, so... I also think as Christians, we have trouble distinguishing what are God things and what are human things, or heavenly things and earthly things. And I think a lot of us live an inferior brand of, if it is at all, Christianity, because we're trying to live a God thing in a human way. We're trying to live a life that is resourced in heaven with earthly abilities. And until we learn that there are some things only God can do, we're going to live fairly frustrated and not really understand the joys, the freedom, and the empowerment that comes from a relationship with God. So um, I've come to realize recently that I'm really not in charge of a lot of things, and I can't fix very many things, right? There aren't many things I can fix. And to the degree that I fool myself into thinking I can fix a lot of things, to that degree I'm going to be frustrated and, and not enjoy life very much. But when I begin to realize that there are some things I can fix, there's a whole lot of other things I can't fix, and that only God can fix those things, then I know how to proceed, and I know how to live my life. And so in the book of John, the Gospel of John, John uses the word life. Uh, 36 times. And he doesn't just mean breathing, surviving, getting through. He's talking about a kind of life that God ordains, a kingdom life, a Christ-centered life, a life that is full of, of uh, peace and love and joy and all the stuff we want, fulfillment, satisfaction, all that stuff that comes because of faith in Jesus Christ. And he, and he says, how do you get this life? And so in uh, the, the third chapter uh, of John, uh, Jesus interacts with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus has a wrong understanding, like many of us fall into, about what really makes life, this kind of life that John is describing, work. And he thinks that you can achieve it, and Jesus says something, it's seemingly pretty harsh. We're talking about the hard sayings of Jesus or savage sayings of Jesus. Why would he respond in certain ways to certain people? Uh, because he's trying to get a message about how life is really supposed to be lived. And so I, I want to read that for you. Let me begin. It's in John. Uh, let me begin at the end of chapter 2 in verse 23 because it, it kind of sets us up for the next thing. Uh, now, while he was in Jerusalem, the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Now, remember why Jesus came. Remember what the mission was. He was slow to reveal why he came, and certainly slow to reveal the cross. And 
in this setting, there's a lot of people that are believing in him, but he's not really fully revealing himself or giving himself to them. The reason being, he knew what was in their hearts. Jesus reads, now I get in trouble when I start judging people's motives, right? That's when I get in trouble. I can read your actions, but I can misread your motives behind your actions. That's why communication, talking, scriptural confrontation is important. We can get at each other's motives. But Jesus already knew people's motives. He saw their hearts, and he knew that these people were either superficial, shallow, temporary followers, and he understood their hearts. And it says in the last verse, he did not uh, need any testimony about human, about mankind, for he knew what was in each, in each person. So he can read a heart. So now this comes into play in his interaction with Nicodemus, starting in, in chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. What's interesting about this is he is from the ruling class of, of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and it's the same body who eventually turned Jesus over to the Romans to be hung. And so most of the time, almost all the time, when we see one of these types interacting with Jesus, it's in order to trip Jesus up, uh, to, to, to stump him on some hard questions. It's rarely, uh, uh, rarely a genuine interaction. Now, what's interesting about Nicodemus, he seems to come and with some, some degree of sincerity. There's no duplicity here. He's not trying to stump Jesus. He's not trying to fool him. He actually seems to be coming uh, to receive some information or some learning, and he's even kind of coming in, a, in a, a complimentary kind of way. We know that you're a great teacher and that, you, that the things you're doing, only God could, uh, a man that has God with him could do them. It seems like a nice, kind of a nice, as opposed to all the others, it seems like a nice way. Now, there's something interesting about, about Jesus when he interacts with people. Some people he is soft with, and some people he's hard with. And the distinction generally is people who are broken, people who are hurting, people who see their real position in life, uh, he is pretty soft with them. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, he is fairly gentle with them and loving and restorative to them immediately. But on the other hand, when he sees religious people, he always seems to be really harsh, really tough on them. And the reason being is that they think they're okay. The woman at the well knew she wasn't okay because nobody in the village liked her. That's why she was getting water in the middle of the day when it was too hot. She knew her position in life, her situation before God. The religious types thought they were good with God because they kept all the rules and had all the learning, all this. And Jesus, whenever he saw them, he would just smack them down immediately. He would, he would be harsh with them in order to get their attention. And he does the same here with Nicodemus. It seems like Nicodemus is like, hey, you're a great teacher. God's with you. Let, you know, let's talk. Let's learn together. And, and here's what Jesus responds. Because Jesus looked in his heart, knew what was there, and knew what it knew what it. He had to change. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He was like, I was just wanting to learn. Like, what? <laughs> what? What? What are you talking about? So Jesus completely knocks him uh, off stride, kind of gets him off balance in order to get his attention, right? And he uses this phrase, born again. Now, for younger generations, that may not mean anything. For those of us who have been around a little while, born again can, can elicit from different people different responses. There was a time, a big phrase in the United States was born-again Christians, which is interesting because it's redundant because there aren't any other kind. Right? 
uh, uh, that's what Jesus just said there. And just, it's not me, it's just argue with him. Uh, so, um, but what's interesting, next week I'm going to be uh, getting on a plane again. Oh, gosh. And, um, and flying to Africa this time, that's going to be fun. That's going to be a party. And, um, and uh, I'm speaking to a group of pastors. I've worked with their denomination for many years. And uh, the denomination is called Born Again Churches. And I remember when I first heard that, I thought, it's so cute, so quaint, born again. We don't really use that in the United States anymore because it's either got political ramifications or uh, people have an image of what that is. And, and, but it's in Scripture. So here's what we need to do is we need to take our idea of what born again means and put it to the side and because here's what it tends to mean to it. And, and it might be something else. Tim Keller talks about it this way. He said it means three things in the United States usually. One is it's those Christians who ye- jump and shout and scream when they worship or it's Christians who have just been down and out and had terrible life controlling issues and they need a strict moral code to live by or it's right winger, um, conservative, politically Christians and they just knee jerk uh, right wingers and that's what born again Christians are. And the truth is, is that those may all have been applied, that, that term may have been applied to those at any given point. But the truth is Nicodemus was none of those things. Uh, Nicodemus uh, wasn't a jump and shout kind of guy. He was part of the Sanhedrin, very pious, all right? So that wasn't him, all right? And he wasn't a down and outer because he was learned. He was probably an older guy at this point to be in the Sanhedrin. He probably had established his life a long time. Things were probably pretty on track with him. And he wasn't a knee-jerk conservative. He was a religious guy, and he was some conservative. But the fact that he would show up to talk to Jesus and sincerity would show that he was still open to learning and listening, all right? So that wasn't the case at all. So what was Jesus trying to tell us by this idea of born again? What does it mean to be born again? And so Jesus kind of just hits him with this phrase, and he's like, what? And so it goes on, and, and, and this is what he says. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asks, because so, he might himself have been old. Um, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born um, and Jesus answered, very, true, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not uh, be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That's a lot. There's just a whole lot going on there. But this guy knew what Jesus was talking about. So here's what's happening. Um, so Nicodemus says, how can an old guy enter into his mother's womb again? Now, he probably wasn't thinking that Jesus was thinking about a physical rebirth. He may have well been saying, just as impossible as it is for me to go back to my mother's womb and start over again, it's just that impossible for someone at my age to start anew spiritually. Because what Jesus said to him was water and spirit. What does that mean? So here's two things. Water. What did John the Baptist do? He, that's why he's called John the, good, you guys are on it. Front row, good. The rest of you, <laughs> catechism class for you. So, um, John the Baptist, why was he baptizing people in water? For repentance. How was a Gentile converted to Judaism? What was the symbol of that? They decided to be a Jew. They were baptized in repentance. Here is Jesus saying to this world-class, all-Israel all Jew, um, you've got to be baptized. No, no, that's for Gentiles. I'm a Jew. I keep the rules. I do all the stuff. No, you, just like a Gentile, have to start from scratch and be born again. You need to be baptized, and water, it's not a baptism water that gets you to heaven. It is a symbol of repentance in this, in this situation especially. And born of the Spirit. 
You have got to be reborn. In other words, all of your rule keeping, all of your knowledge about scripture, all that stuff, you don't get any brownie points with God. You're just like the woman at the well, just like the, the woman caught in the just like everybody else. You've got to start from scratch. And so what he's saying is you've misunderstood something. And the reason he kind of hit him so hard up front with is because he wanted to break a mindset. And here was the mindset. And it is the mindset that you and I fall prey to all the time. And it's one we've got to break. And, it, and we would never say this, but we live this way. His mindset was that if I, if I do things right, if I keep the law and I learn everything, I can get myself to heaven. I can get there. I can be that good. And see, we theologically, we know that's not true, but practically in our lives, we're just trying all the time to get there because we think, so here's what Jesus said. Jesus says, you don't need a teacher because remember, Nicodemus says, Jesus, you're a good teacher. Even a teacher that's got God with you and what Jesus says is you don't need a teacher, you need a savior. So you can't learn enough stuff to get yourself to heaven. You don't need more information. So um, at one point I was, uh, um, uh, I grew up in a, in a little bit mystical kind of church environment and then I kind of ran away from God and then God got hold of me again. And, and then I decided, you know what, Christianity is too hard if it's mystical I need to boil it down so that people can understand and, and do Christianity. And so I began to think about things like four easy steps to be a great Christian, you know, or, or, or five, five things you do to, to become a Christian, or six things you do to have a great marriage, or 17 things you do to lose weight. I never wrote that one. Um, <laughs> and so I began in my mind trying to put Christianity on, on a lower shelf so that people could understand it. The problem was I was leaving out something kind of important. Jesus. You can't be a Christian without Jesus because Christianity isn't about something you can do any more than Nicodemus could keep the rules and get himself to heaven. It's not something you do, it is something that happens to you and you cooperate by obedience. You listen. And so, so have you ever, I, so one of the first things I teach, I've never taken lifeguard, but my brother's lifeguard, and he said, you never try to save someone who's drowning when they still think they can save themselves. What do you do? You wait till they're exhausted. They're about to drown. You come in behind him. You grab him over the shoulder and you pull him in. Because if you try to save someone who thinks they can save themselves, they'll drown themselves and you. Is that true? This is California, people. You've been to the beach. Am I not telling the truth here? All right. So here is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you think you can save yourself. You can't. By the way, some of you are having trouble with the word saved. What does the word saved mean? It means a bunch of things. A, it means forgiven for everything I've ever done wrong. It means promise of heaven, a real place, and saved from my own stupidity here and now. I can't change my own behavior on my own. I can follow these six things, but the next day I'm, I'm messing up again. I need someone to save me from my own self, from my own inclinations, my own appetites, my own urges. I need someone to save me from my past that I can't achieve forgiveness for on my own. I need someone to save me to a forever future with God. That's what saving looks like. And you can't do it on your own. You can't do it. And so Nicodemus, you don't need a teacher. You need a savior. Quit trying to save yourself so I can save you. That's what he's saying to him. And the way he gets this through to him is to say, you, you're so out of the ballpark. We've got to go back to the beginning and start over. You've got to be born of the spirit. You're not even alive spiritually, much less able to save yourself. So I was trying to think of an analogy for this. I was laying in bed this morning early, couldn't sleep. I had a pretty bad day yesterday. Did I mention that? And um, <laughs> nope, 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 
So disingenuous. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I was thinking of an analogy. So Moy, uh, who prayed a moment ago, if you don't know Moy, Moy is bilingual. He doesn't just speak a little Spanish. He's bilingual. His parents are Spanish-speaking. He grew up in a Spanish-speaking home. He also grew up in an, in an English-speaking school system. And so he is bilingual, both equal, completely equal. And he's now. I was thinking about what would it be like for me to be a Spanish speaker. I could. I know Spanish. I know like how to f- ask for a bathroom. No, that's it. Yeah, that's what I know. <laughs> and but let's say I decided to commit the rest of my life to learning to be Spanish speaker. Now I could get better. I could learn some. But I will never fool anybody to think that I am a native Spanish speaker. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I cannot get there. Honest to goodness, not go with this. This is a limited metaphor, but go with it. The only way for me to truly be fluent in Spanish, to be a Spanish, is to start over to be born in a family that speaks Spanish. Grow up speaking Spanish. Anything else is just me trying. Right now, in the case of Spanish, it's probably good that I would try, but whatever. But when it comes to salvation, the only way to truly be saved is to be born of the Spirit. Does that make sense? Do you guys get that? It sounded good at six this morning. <laughs> and so here is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you can keep trying, but you're never going to be a native spiritual person. <laughs> right? You are always going to be somebody trying to act spiritual. But if you're born of the Spirit, if the Spirit births you into something new, a new life, a rebirth, then you are a spiritual person. Now, this is just powerful. This is just really powerful if you get this. So here, here's what you need to think about. Here is Nicodemus, kept all the rules, knows all the stuff, earned his way to the top, and now he's being told that doesn't matter, none of that matters. That could be a very disappointing moment. All of his brownie points with God just got wiped out. But it also, if you really understand what Jesus is saying to him, Jesus is trying to tell him something wonderful. So... Um, I mentioned last service, someone came to me afterwards to talk to me about it. If you were born into and raised in a performance-based family, do you know what I mean by that? Like, it felt like, it may not have been true, but you perceived that your self-worth and your value to the family is purely based on you getting the right grades, having the right friends, looking a certain way. If you live in, you know the incredible burden because it's never enough, Right? So if you had a mom or dad who just always, always, and it was all about that, and by the way, this is how narcissists uh, get developed uh, by this in extreme cases, um, it's never enough. And so you're always striving to do better to, to hear that, that, that accolade that you're never going to hear, and it becomes an incredible burden, and it just messes people up. And if you're from a home like that, a person came to me, I'm, I'm from that home, and it took me years to come to grips with that. If you have been raised in that, and suddenly somebody frees you from that. Whether it's counseling or therapy or whatever it is, you get freed from that. Doesn't your life get lifted up? Doesn't it get better? Don't you feel a freedom? See, this is why Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, quit living under the burden of trying to earn your way into heaven. Let God do something in you that will free you to become more than you ever become on your own. So I mentioned earlier that I, I was raised uh, in an in a environment which was kind of mystical, and I tried to put Christianity on the bottom shelf. But I realized something. 
I realized as I saw people come and go from the church, and there's another parable about the parable of the seeds, the condition of the soil, which explains this a bit, but I realized that I see people come to the church and they seem to do okay for a while, and it seems to improve their family. I mean, the visible changes are obvious, but then they just bail. They just, just disappear. Sometimes they say goodbye, sometimes they don't, and then I hear later they wreck their life, and I'm going, what happened to you? What happened? And it's because they were trying to do Christianity in an earthly way, but Christianity can only be done by heaven's power, and there has to be something supernatural. And by trying to take the mysticism out of faith, I was, I was leading people to a formula and not a, a friend, to a way to do things and not a person to do them with. You see, the power of the new birth is, you can't explain it, it is something mystical. When God does his work, you can identify it when it happens. You can see when it happens, but you can't explain. I can't explain how the new birth happens. I just know that somehow when you come to believe in Jesus and you put your trust in him, he begins to develop something new in you. As a matter of fact, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds on this one, but the words used about this are the same words of the power that will be uh, put into effect when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. The picture is this, that the power that God releases into your life mystically, I don't know how it works. The power that brings rebirth, new birth, is the same power that will create the new heavens and the new earth someday. He's just to get in a head start with us. That's, that's how much power God wants to release in your life. And so if you have come to places in your life like I have where I realize I just can't fix this person, these relationships, this nation, myself, then I ask God, God, I need that rebirth. I need to be new. I need you to recreate me, to be born again, uh, seeing things, understanding things from a heavenly perspective and heavenly empowerment, not earthly. Now, here's how Jesus says this in the following thing. Um, he says this. Uh, you shall be right to be born again. The wind blows, this is verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born in the Spirit. What he's saying is, you don't know where the wind comes from, but you can see evidence that it's there. And when someone has a rebirth, is born again, you don't know how it happened, but things begin to change. And it's not just a superficial, temporary, white-knuckle-your-way-through kind of deal. It is something at the core. St. Augustine said it this way, uh, and there's pretty good evidence, and some have said it this way, that St. Augustine was probably a sex addict before he became a Christian. Afterwards, he said, God began to reorder the loves of my heart. What Jesus is about to lead Nicodemus is in from a law, rules, performance-based religion into a love-based relationship with God because that's where we experience life change. So he goes on and says this, um, how can this be, Nicodemus said. You are Israel's teacher, and said Jesus, you didn't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, you do not believe them. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In other words, I've tried to talk to you in kind of a down-to-earth kind of way, but there's something more going on here. There's something mystical, there's something um, uh, transcendent that God wants to do. And it says this, and no one has ever uh, gone into heaven except the one who came from him, referring to himself, the son of man. And here is just this weird little thing. Because remember, Jesus always knows his audience. And he not only knows 
the superficial, he knows their heart. And so he's trying to communicate to this guy's heart. So he goes to something this guy knows really well, which is the Old Testament. And in verse, um, let's see, where is it? In verse uh, 15, there, there, 14, there is this thing. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, this is a weird little thing here, okay? I know this is a really kind of getting into a theological thing. But if you remember back in Numbers, if you ever read Numbers, you'll find that children of Israel were being disobedient to God. There were poisonous snakes that came, began to bite, and they began to die. Do you remember this story? And what did Moses do? God instructed Moses to take a, it was a, it's a banner holder. We still use them the same way. Big stick, little stick crossed like this, and you can put a banner on it. And he put a bronze snake on it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Next time you go to your doctor's office, look at, at the symbol there. It's that one. And what happened is the people who were dying from the poisonous snakes, if they would just look at the bronze snake, they would be healed. By the way, this is a precursor, a type in the Old Testament of what was going to happen with Jesus. Follow me? And so he used the Old Testament to say to this Old Testament scholar, dude, remember the stick on the snake, or the snake on the stick story? Remember that one? Okay, think about it because that's what's going to save everybody. This is really important to the rest of the story. What he's trying to say to him is all of your hard work, all of your stuff, it's not getting you. There's only one thing, and it is Jesus. And it is looking. So what we look at matters. What we, who we look to matters ultimately. And he's trying to teach Nicodemus that if you look to me, if you look to the Savior, I will, I will bring everything about that you wanted. I will cause you to be forgiven. I will cause you to be reborn. I will do this life thing that you're looking for, this kingdom thing. And you will see the evidence um, in your life. And so remember the snake on the stick because that, that's an important part of it. Uh, and, then, and then we get done with that and a passage you might recognize, John three, sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is in this context of talking to Nicodemus that we hear that God sent his son. It's the snake in this, it's the snake on the stick picture that when God sent his son, we think about walking around teaching, that's not the reference. The reference is to the cross. It is the cross. So, and then he goes on, let me just read the rest of it for you. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He wasn't interacting with Nicodemus this way to condemn him, to make him feel bad, to put him down. He was trying to free him into a love relationship with the one who died for him. He goes on. Um, uh, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done in the sight of God. Here's, here's where it goes. It goes from keeping the rules and trying to save yourself to looking at the cross, realizing what Jesus did, and falling in love. Falling in love. See, rule-keeping or living in love, which sounds more exciting to you? Right? So many of us are trying to do Christianity without Christ. What is Christianity? It's walking in relationship with Christ. Yeah, I'm going to try to obey his words. I'm going to try to live that out the best I can, but because I love him. I don't not cheat on my wife because it's against the rules. I don't cheat on my wife because I really love her. I would not want to hurt her like that because I love her. You see, we need to look at Jesus, fall in love with Jesus, and, and over the past, and so, so my wife, um, 
and I've been married 38 years, and I love her more now than when we met. <clears throat> You're applauding because you know how much work that woman has done. Um, <laughs> I love her more now. I have to tell you, I love Jesus more now than I did when I first started walking with him. I walked with him a little bit out of fear, a whole lot of misunderstanding, some guilt, but I walk with Jesus now because I have experienced over all of these years his love, his acceptance, his forgiveness, and I know now at this point that my life would have no meaning without him. I wouldn't know why I'm on this earth. The best I could do is try to fill my urges every day. And that's not going to get me anywhere but fatter, right? <laughs> I have a love relationship. Jesus was trying to help Nicodemus move beyond a rules, self-earning, self-focused salvation to a love relationship with the God who created him. By the way, there's an interesting thing in John chapter 19. After Jesus has been killed on the cross, do you know who showed up to bury him? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Now think about this. The very Sanhedrin, the very ruling class, a group of people that got Jesus killed, two of them now move away from their peers. Talk about courage. Go take him off a cross, put him in. And I just need to tell you the truth. Culturally, they would never have done that because of their status in society and because they were male. Women and, and servants or slaves would have done the preparation for the burial. But these two men of high standing came from that place took a dangerous mission to take him from the cross to prepare him personally for burial. Is it possible that Nicodemus went away thinking about this and then when he saw Jesus lifted up? By the way, when scripture talks about lifted up, it means two things. It means hung on a cross and it means exalted, which were the same time and the same thing for Jesus. When he saw Jesus lifted up, he went, oh my goodness, I get it. It's not about the rule keeping. It's not about self-salvation. It is about trusting this man who told me the truth. So I think about people who walk away and I wonder how. How could I walk away from Jesus? He's never done anything but forgive me, love me, guide me, direct me, confront me when I needed it as someone who loves me would. How could I ever walk away? And how could I ever look and what he did on the cross and say, well, that's, that's a good way, but there's got to be more. That's not enough. There's got to be at least 17 more ways because that's what I think because I'm more important. What I think is more important. How could I ever look at him and go, that's not enough if I really understood? So my question today is, are you living an atheist version of Christianity? Meaning you're trying to do it on your own or have you been born again? There's some wonderful imagery there in that born-again thing. I've been in the, in the delivery room for two births, both of my children, and frankly, both of them were pretty easy for me. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie to you, they were pretty easy on both kids. One of them got his head sideways and came out kind of with a pointed head. He still has that, but, um, <laughs> but it was pretty easy on them, too. They, you know, they were a little shocked by the lights and cried when they slapped him on the bottom, but, you know. Do you know who, but there was someone in the room who was doing a lot of work, who was experiencing pain and there was some bloodshed. See, the new birth isn't about you trying harder and going through pain and suffering. It's about someone else who already went through the pain and suffering for you and me so that God could supernaturally change us.
Today, I just ask, have you been born again? Not a matter of conviction or condemnation. Jesus didn't come to condemn. A matter of invitation. If you've not been born again and you're trying to do it on your own, that's a lousy way to do religion. It's just not much fun because you're never going to get there. You're just going to experience a whole lot of try harder. But when we come to Jesus, we say, my life is yours. I give it to you. I'm going to do my best with your help to be obedient, but you've already paid the price. Now help me experience the freedom and the joy of being loved in a way I've never been loved before. Then life starts working. Then you start to experience that life that John was talking about, a life that lasts forever, that has meaning in the present, and the changes that come with it as you become more like your Savior. Don't settle for any other, any other religion, any other version of Christianity. Be born again and let God do the work and begin to grow in joy and peace and love as you were intended to. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you. You are good. You came and you died so we wouldn't have to pay that price. And Lord God, you have offered it to us. Not that we would somehow perform in a way that we would achieve it, but that we would just open our our hands and our arms and receive it. And so today we receive your grace. Lord, if there's anybody here today who's been doing a whole lot of try harder, release them from that bondage, Lord God. And, and give them a new birth as they say yes to you. Lord, if there are people here today who want to just make you a good teacher, maybe even one among many, I ask that you would help them see that you are more than a teacher. You are a savior. And that they would trust you for their forgiveness, for their salvation, and with their eternity. And Lord God, most of all, we just love you for your willingness to care for us to save us on a daily basis, not in an eternal sense, but from bad decisions and bad attitudes and wrong perceptions. And Lord, we really do need you every day because if we're to become who you've called us to be, we want to be, it's going to take some heaven power, not just earth power. So come, work in us in supernatural ways this week. In Jesus' name, amen.